This podcast is sponsored by Jabra Enhance. Getting hearing aids is no picnic. It's expensive, confusing, time-consuming, right? Actually, no. With the Jabra Enhance Select and Premium Package, you can get state-of-the-art hearing aids and professional care without the hassle. Jabra Enhance offers advanced rechargeable hearing aids delivered to your door for thousands less than you'd expect. No offices, no waiting rooms. Just take the online hearing test to personalize your hearing aids. Enjoy speech clarity, noise reduction, and hearing technology that adapts to your unique sound environments. And the audiology team can provide adjustments to your hearing aids remotely on request for three years. And the best part? You'll likely pay thousands less than if you went to a traditional audiologist. And now for a limited time, save $200 when you order Jabra Enhanced Select Hearing Aids with promo code PODCAST. Go to jabraenhanced.com and enter promo code PODCAST to save. jabraenhanced.com code PODCAST. For eligible individuals 18 and older in 50 United States and Washington, D.C. with mild to moderate hearing loss only, audiology team may not be able to program hearing aids for some types of hearing loss. See website for details and important safety information. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is May the 18th, and my guest is Brian Robertson. Brian is a serial entrepreneur and the creator of Holacracy, a comprehensive practice for governing and running organizations. Holacracy has become a very well-known, you could say, buzzword or meme. We'll talk about Holacracy as a governance system for running organizations, This is close to my heart as a former startup operator. Actually, in my uh, role, we tried to implement some of the principles of Holacracy, but didn't do a very good job at it. <laughs> Holacracy is also close to the topics we discuss in this podcast when it comes to governance innovation for organizations or even whole cities. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to diving in. Yeah, me too. Brian, you're so well known for Holacracy now, but besides that, what yeah. else is there to know about you? Yeah, my my one of my core passions, actually, especially the past few years, has been community building and uh, psychedelics. I am building a psychedelic church and uh, really focusing on on more uh, how do we build uh, communities that are incredibly deep, loving connections. I have my own community here in Austin, Texas, where I live, uh, that I wouldn't have believed is possible a few years ago. The depth of connection is, is really mind-blowing. Uh, they're family. They're all family. It's it's incredible. And I love helping others uh, connect into community and build community. And it's kind of one of my main passions, aside from organizational structure and governance. <laughs> Yeah, there's an interesting kind of regulatory loophole that you're using as a religious organization, right? Can you talk a yeah. bit about that? Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty cool. And with various U.S. case law, and, and I should say this is this is edgy, and it may or may not work if challenged in any given case. It's gone both ways in different different real cases. There's basically a religious freedom exemption you can lean on to do otherwise controlled substances in a spiritual context. And... So there's uh, psychedelic churches springing up all over the place in the U.S. now as a result. There's ones that have been challenged and, and lost and ones that have sustained it and, and won their cases. It really comes down to uh, a lot of it is, is it a genuine attempt to build a, a, a community, a spirituality around a community where the substance is, is critical to what you're, you're trying to build and do? 
versus like the ones that have lost are, you know, there's an ayahuasca retreat that we're selling tickets, people fly in, they do a thing and then they go away. And it's not a community. It's, it's more like selling a, a, a workshop registration or something. And those have not stood up uh, to test so far, but um, the ones that are genuinely uh, a community, it's not always about just the psychedelics. It's not a revolving door of people, but it's, it's a community that comes together much like you might see an actual church. Uh, can get some some significant protection from that, and that lets uh, those of us doing work like that actually build it. I imagine the paperwork around that is quite funny, right? Where you have to credibly tell the story. You know, we're really so into this, and the substance yeah. is like the core of what we are. Yeah, it really is. And there's also an interesting legal challenge uh, I'm <laughs> thinking about uh, pursuing here. Uh, which is you can uh, preemptively bring a case in the U.S. and uh, go for what's called a declaratory judgment, where instead of waiting for the state to come after you for something they deem illegal and then using this this church as a defense, you can preemptively go to a court and say, look, I, I intend to do this thing that I interpret to be legal and the state might interpret it differently. And if they did, the consequences are severe. So I'd like the court to try it in advance of the state challenging, which is really interesting in that uh, if you lose, then nobody goes to jail, right? And if you win, you basically get a free pass to do it as if the state has already tried you after the fact. Not only does that give you some protection, it removes the, the incentive to plea bargain in the whole thing because there's not a, a threat on the other side of it. I really want to, to, to go down this road, but, but actually lose. Because if you lose, you can appeal it. And if you win in an appellate court, it sets binding case law that binds other courts in the jurisdiction to the logic you know, found there. And if you lose that level and you, you appeal it to a federal circuit court, you're now actually creating effectively policy across a significant uh, chunk of the, the country without having to go through the legislative arm to do it. So it's kind of a backdoor way of legalizing psychedelics in certain contexts, which is pretty exciting for me. So that's, that's one of my projects. <laughs> very exciting and very core to what this podcast is about, the legal engineering aspect of yeah. it, right? Yeah, totally. How does it connect to the other topics that you've been working on in your life? You said that community is kind of at the core of it. Is there like an origin story that's led to Holacracy and that psychedelic church? Yeah, it's, I almost think of it as two, uh, two sides of, of a coin or something. It's uh, the first, you know, many, two decades really of my life spent building and spreading holacracy was this deep fascination with finding, uh, you might say, uh, as, as human consciousness gains more and more and more complexity, naturally the forms we use to organize also end up more and more mirroring the complexity of consciousness. And one of the challenges we see in the world today, I think, is the forms that we see dominant in how we organize companies are no longer sufficient for the complexity of the world, right? We have a massively complex adaptive system in the world today. The companies really weren't built for that. The modern management model was not built to handle the, it was built to handle uh, complicated tasks, but not complex, not truly complex adaptive systems. And that's what we have so much and what the world calls for. My question was, uh, at first, how does this kind of, uh, you might say, new consciousness that, uh, or, or more sophisticated consciousness that we see in, in a critical mass of people in the world today, what is the natural expression of that in how we structure and organize a company and work together and set expectations and align? Uh, and that led to holacracy. And then once that was pretty established, it works quite well. It spread all over the place. 
tens of thousands of companies. And uh, my attention then turned to, okay, that's great. What, what about the same question, this, this new consciousness, this new complexity that, that we humans are capable of? What happens when you, you try to find the natural form of how to live together, be together, love in community? And that also went with, for me, the first one does not require uh, nearly as much open-hearted spiritual development, you might say, as the, the latter. And as my own development went to just really dropping more into my body and my emotions and figuring out how to live from a just broken open heart, uh, my attention shifted more and more to the community aspects. And of course, the two are so related because any company is also to some degree a community. And any community often has some work to get done together in some way, right? These two are, are often at least related in some, some form. The theme across them is pioneering new ways of being that uh, somehow reflect a new consciousness. New ways of being, new ways of consciousness and of building community. I like that. Can you say a bit, what are the common misconceptions about holacracy by people yeah. that don't know too much about it or haven't tried it yet? Yeah. So it's a framework for running a company that there's several. One is, uh, so when I, I tell people just a little bit about it or they read, especially the press gets it like horribly wrong. It's overly simplified left and right, but, uh, that you'll often hear holacracy is a, a system that gets rid of managers. There's no managers, which actually is, is uh, largely true when you fully do it. There are many steps before that point to, to adopting it, but, and, and yet when people hear that, they tend to have some misconceptions. One is that there's no structure. And that's not true. Companies running with holacracy have more structure, not less than a management hierarchy. Just like a society running with an emergent order paradigm, a free market society is not unstructured chaos. There's tons of structure. It, it's just, we arrive at the structure differently than a top-down command economy where some dictator at the top tries to, you know, top-down control the entire economy. If anything, free markets are far better at creating structure and evolving structure, right? There is structure, there's more. Uh, and it's more clear and it tends to be more effective. So it's not unstructured, it's more structured. The other common misconception people imagine, well, if there's no managers, then decisions just must get made by large groups sitting around talking forever, trying to come to consensus, which is so ironic because that seems to be the way so many decisions get made in top-down management hierarchies, right? Like we have all these giant painful meetings where everyone tries to build buy-in for everyone else. It's a massive waste of time. Holacracy is more autocratic than a management hierarchy. Not autocratic. More, yeah, it's more autocratic. It's just decentralized autocratic decision-making. So the focus with the framework is clarifying who makes which decisions, within what limits, who do they need to talk to and who don't they, so that people are genuinely empowered to go lead, to go you know, use their judgment. Just like in a, in a free society, I don't need to call a meeting of my neighborhood to decide how to redecorate my kitchen. You know, I, my kitchen, I know what's mine to control. I don't need to build buy-in and consensus with everyone. I, I have simply property rights. Uh, you can think of, of that holacracy brings a, a more of a free market dynamic with clear property rights and boundaries into an organization and allows a more self-organized emergent order uh, to show up. So another way you can think of it is management. It is management. That is management. We do all the work of management, but without managers. It's a framework to do management that invites everybody to be part of that work using a governance process and more of an emergent order framework. Yeah. Yeah. Another misconception or, or someone who talked about it in sort of a negative way was to my surprise, Mark Andreessen, right? <laughs> so he was kind of portraying it as, as 
this hippy dippy new thing that yeah. startups do and he puts it like next to like free kombucha or whatever whatever <laughs> right so no, that's great yeah was, he's, he totally does not understand what it is and he'd probably yeah. love it if he did but actually uh, it's uh, no it's not at all it's an incredibly rigorous disciplined framework for getting better management it's sometimes people think of it as a departure from management it's not it's the natural extension of getting more and more clear uh what are we delegating? What are we not? It's all about organizational clarity and giving people real freedom within real limits to go lead their part. It's not about stripping power away from managers. It's about raising power throughout the whole system so that everybody can lead and hold others accountable when they need to. Yeah. You certainly can use it as a hippy dippy person, but the system is anything but. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if you can kind of contrast it with what seems to me Mark Andreessen's own proposed solution, right? So what he's often criticizing is managerial capitalism, right? So a firm is kind of uh, run by managers who don't have a lot of skin in the game and who are basically empty puppets and whatever, whatever. And he contrasts that with kind of a kind of Randian ideal of like entrepreneurial capitalism that's kind of more 19th century. And you have more like an founder owner that is strongly on top and has a very strong directional and guiding vision. Where would you put that next to these two poles or how would you yeah. interrogate that? Yeah. So one thing I'll say is that uh, it, it, they're really talking about two different layers, if you will. They're, you can intermix them in different ways. So you can run a firm with Holacracy as an operational management framework, whatever capital structure and incentive structure might be in place. So you could have uh, a structure where one person owns all of the equity and does no work in the company. And you can still run that company with a lockers if you want to. Uh, or you could have a complete worker-owned cooperative, you know, uh, where everybody has even an equal amount of equity and still run that company with a lockers. It's working at a, a, a different, different layer. That said, I personally much prefer as many people as possible in my company to have skin in the game. And ideally skin in the game that they haven't got it for free, but they've written a check. We actually ask or in many cases require people we're hiring to actually write a check and buy into the company's equity as a condition of working here. And and that's not holacracy. That's just the way my company does it, right? We can do it any number of ways. I generally am of a mindset that the more people have skin in the game, the better things work. That said, holacracy is intentionally not trying to address that. It's addressing, well, whatever equity structure, capital structure you have, how does control work and how does expectations work? How do we manage and hold people accountable? How do we get alignment? You know, that kind of stuff. That said, it does address some of the problem though, that way, which is it tends towards people acting far more like business partners. They have real ownership and real accountability. It's so easy to hide behind a boss, hide in a management hierarchy, to defer difficult decisions upward instead of really leading. That doesn't happen in companies that are doing holacracy well nearly as often. I even feel it myself. I've run companies for uh, more than 20 years now. And my last company before holacracy, uh, it was a traditional management hierarchy. And I felt like I had employees and I hated having employees. I wanted business partners. I wanted co-founders, or at least people that did like that. And that's part of the motivation that led to the development of Holacracy. How can I have a company where people have real friggin' ownership and don't just project all their power under me at the top? And many years of experimentation later, Holacracy did not come about theoretically. It was lots of experimentation and, and first my business and then many others. And, and now that is not just a cultural feel, but there's actually a legal structure to this uh, optionally. Many companies don't want to go this far, which I totally respect. It's a, it's a leap. 
Uh, but there is a legal structure that actually makes that a legal reality. My company, we, we have no employees legally. Nobody gets a W-2 in the U.S. Everyone gets a K-1. They're a business partner in, uh, in a partnership. And, and there's something powerful about that legal reality, not to mention it's quite convenient to duck all employment law crap that is out there, not to mention the extra liability that comes with having employees, the extra insurance requirements. It's just a lot of crap. We have no employees. We have business partners. Um, and we can do that with a, a unique class of equity that gives them something that mimics a salary. Um, and LLC laws are flexible enough to allow this. And they have a real voice in the legal governance of the entity through holacracy. It's not a democratic voice. It's, it's a very different system. But it is a voice in setting structure and governance of the entity. And that lets us meet the standards courts apply for, is this really a business partner versus employee? So you can go that far. And that changes the culture. When people know they are not employees, they're really business partners. They have a stake. They have skin in the game. If you choose to go that, that route, you get a radically different kind of ownership and empowerment. Yeah. Uh, I should say it's possible. It still requires a person to step up and take it. And not everyone's ready for that. But yeah, yeah. So, so what kind of are, um, sort of on a practical level, the key organizational mechanisms you have to design that at what stage? And I'm thinking kind of of being like an early stage founder initially is like two or three people. And then you need to get into hiring. There's all these unknowns, right? And there's kind of the traditional structure that works relatively simple, right? So how as such as an early stage founder, At what stage would you need to implement holacracy and how would it look like from a practical mechanism design? Yeah. So, so the earlier, the easier, I should say. The earlier you, you grow with it, you're not trying to replace the power structure, especially if you, you know, once you, once you get to a certain size, you've got a whole management hierarchy in place. It's that, that power structure will often resist a, a change to it as power often does. You're changing the fundamental way power works, which is what holacracy does. So it is easier to grow with it. It's really possible. We've transitioned, probably the largest company, the companies that have transitioned across the whole board were somewhere around 2,000 employees. And that's really, really hard. But growing with it is not. Uh, so the earlier, the easier. And there's, there's several steps. And philocracy uh, is also not an all or nothing thing. You can, you can take pieces of it. There's different building blocks, really separated into five different building blocks. It's a, I should say it's a constitutional management system. Power rests in a constitution. There's a written constitution. It's an open source document. It's the same constitution used by all the companies doing holacracy. And uh, that's not to say it's a one size fits all. It's just a framework within which you're going to customize all the roles, all the policies, all the processes in your unique The framework in the constitution just defines the meta process by which you're going to govern what are the roles and who's responsible for what, who has what power, what are the limits. That's defined by this meta framework. And that meta framework, the constitution is broken down into five articles and you can adopt each of them independently. So one of them, the foundational one defines a role-based organizational structure, a way of describing work by defining clear roles. And if you just adopt that and none of the rest, you're still in a management hierarchy, but you're in a better one. Uh, you're basically giving your managers a framework and saying, here's how you have to break down and delegate work instead of just micromanaging and, you know, just bossing people around all the time or whatever, create clarity. Clarify roles. Here's a language for describing who makes which decisions, what's expected of them in their role. You can just adopt that piece and just have a more functional management hierarchy, right? So that's kind of one building block. And, and the role structure Holacracy uses is pretty cool. It's, it's quite different than what we're used to with a job description, which, you know, you have one job description in your company and it's written and probably out of date before you start work. Never changes much. You rarely reference it because it's not real clarity. 
Holacracy's roles are small. I fill 20 roles in my company across several teams. They change and evolve regularly with real on the ground feedback as we learn what we need to expect differently from the different roles involved. Right. So role-based framework like that's the first piece. And then there's, there's four more you can layer on top of to get there. Um, some of them improve your meetings and give you a vastly better way of meeting. Some of them start really delegating power to roles and remove the need for managers uh, by giving other mechanisms that are just more effective for people to hold each other accountable. And then finally, there's a governance module, which is how do we have anyone propose changes to the rules? So instead of that going to the manager, which is where most companies start. Right. And as you evolve further, you could define, use Holacracy's governance process that invites anyone to be able to propose changes and a team-based process to evaluate them. And then the whole structure becomes organic and living and evolving and adapts to whatever reality it finds itself in. That's yeah, where you get yeah. true emergent order. I'm wondering how that, how that fits kind of your observation or your experience. But I read this book by Reed Hastings, No Rules, Rules. And I found it very interesting, right? So he talks about building a culture that's very self-organized and you don't need a lot of approvals, sort of the individual leads have a lot of authority and sort of all these things that we want, right? In sort of modern adaptive organizations made for complexity, but it comes at a very high price or just a very a price that's probably hard to achieve for many organizations, which is talent density. Right. So it only works. And his experience is coming from having had to lay off, I think, more than 50% or 70% of the workforce. And then paradoxically observing that he got more productive after. And, that's <laughs> like, and his explanation was that, you know, with the higher talent density, people are more motivated to perform better. Right. And yeah. this leads to all sorts of positive externality, where, where sort of um, a lower density kind of drags yeah. down the average. Right. So I was wondering how that informs decision-making or when you want to build a holocratic organization? Yeah, uh, so, uh, this is great. I lo love the question. Uh, Holacracy's goal is minimally sufficient, just-in-time clarity of rules, process, roles, any of it. The right answer to that question of what is minimally sufficient, right, depends on the talent density, right? If, if you have a very high talent density, you're going to need less clarity because people know how to just get stuff done. They don't need processes spelled out in as much detail. Right. It also depends on other things too, like the complexity of the environment, right? There's many factors, but talent density is a big one. If you have less talent density, you're going to need a little more clarity. And one of the things I love about Holacracy is it scales and adapts to any of those because instead of trying to define, here's the right level of clarity for you up front, it says, let's start with the vast minimum amount of clarity that you think might actually like, isn't totally unsafe to even try. And then from there, feel the tensions coming from doing work. And by tension, I mean, just anytime you're sensitive, a gap, something could be better than it is. Something could be more effective, more efficient, whatever. And then let's use those tensions to drive just enough more needed clarity to resolve that tension. What tensions show up and how many are going to be partly a function of talent density and, and other things. So uh, it's funny, I'll even see this in my company where we have somebody way overqualified in a role. The role needs very little clarity, very little process definition. Everything's working. And then that person goes on to do something bigger and better and somebody newer, younger, more not as skilled with the role comes in and suddenly lots of tensions show up that drive more clarity. We need to define some more processes, get some more clear policies. And then that person can excel with a little more definition and structure, right? And yet we didn't need it with the person that had just more, more skill in that, that role. And 
And yet it adapts, right? Like this is just in time clarity. Let's wait till we actually need the clarity instead of trying to build all the clarity up front, which just ends up with bureaucratic mess. Or let's have a system where we resist adding any bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is useful to an extent in its pure form, right? If we resist adding any clarity and yet we need it, we get chaos and waste. So what really, this is the core of what holacracy is. It's a just-in-time meta framework for taking whatever tensions are showing up that people feel and processing them into organizational clarity until the tension's gone. So with that, it's fascinating. You'll have parts of the organization getting really, really, really clear because they need it and other parts left with a lot of ambiguity because it's working and no one's feeling tension. And this kind of bridges the two. Right, You can have a holacracy-powered company, the meta framework of holacracy, that has massive definition, if that's truly what's needed from real on-the-ground feedback. Or you can have one that has virtually nothing, if that's truly what's working and not, show, not surfacing tensions. And it will evolve and adapt in both directions. You'll get clarity added and you'll get clarity removed when the structure is actually getting in the way. It makes it quite easy to do either uh, in a way that doesn't cause harm. Yeah. Yeah, I was chatting a bit with ChatGPT before, and it told me yeah. what influenced you was Andy Grove's book, High Output Management. Is that that right? is one of ChatGPT's hallucinations. No, hallucinations, <laughs> not no. at all. Not at all. Wow. It, it went even further to say that the concept of task relevant maturity was particularly the one that was. There was some of that from uh, Elliot Jack's work. Um, some of that. Yeah. Was <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Because I thought it could actually be correct if you assume that, um, or, or how it describes sort of that managers kind of always try to make themselves redundant, right? Yeah. So initially yeah. they might have to sort of invest a lot of time in someone new, depending on the task and their maturity in it. But they yeah. kind of work towards sort of what you mean by minimally sufficient to yeah. eventually sort of have them be run autonomously, right? Yeah, holacracy is really about getting good management. And it's one of the best mm -hmm. training mechanisms you can do, ironically, to build better managers, right? Good managers don't micromanage. They create clarity and empower within that clarity. And when issues come up, they solve it at a meta level. They go to the what's process and roles and clarify and fix the system instead of firefighting within it only. Holacracy forces them to do these things and gives them guide rails on how to do it. It makes people better managers and not just the managers. It makes everybody better managers. So it's always ironic when, when people think I'm somehow anti-management. I'm not. <laughs> I'm trying to perfect management. <laughs> so I had this thought after I spent some time in Zuzalu in Montenegro, right? So that's very heavily run by Vitalik Buterin and by the Ethereum Foundation. And it just reminded me, or it seemed to me like a very decentralized way of organizing or running things. Do you have any overlaps or any experience with the Ethereum Foundation thus far? Is it something that comes close to what you're... Uh, We've had a couple of chats with um, one of the people there and uh, nothing that went anywhere in particular, but I know they've been watching and following my work. At least some of the folks there don't know how much they got into it. Don't know how influenced it is, but there's been one of the interesting things about holacracy is how many people have some influence by it, even if they're not doing what I would call holacracy. It's, it's still influenced an entire dialogue in, in management thinking, which I think is great. Like I, I just having this other perspective of maybe self-organization you know, and, and inviting more people into the work of management through a clear process is worth exploring. <laughs> the other thing I, I love is the more people in their companies get to taste what real self-organization and emergent order with a clear framework, healthy self-organization, the more people taste that, the more open they are to it in society.
Uh, it's a stealth way of changing people's ideas about how how countries need to be run. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's definitely something we we want to we want to get to talking about stealth way to to run countries and societies in a different way. But I wanted to see if this two by two yeah. matrix resonates with you because that was kind of my proposal, kind of to overcome the entrepreneurial managerial capitalism distinction, right? So you could have centralized and decentralized ways of running things, right? So yeah. we know what centralized means and centralized can be robust or fragile, right? So yeah. when it's fragile, it gets worse every time it's stress tested. Yeah. So basically governments are run like that. They are centrally yeah. run fragile organizations. So yeah. any new stress test is often putting stresses on the system that make it perform worse over time, right? So yeah. for example, when something we talk a lot in the podcast when something bad happens like 9-11 or like a public health disaster and like COVID, yeah. we make these really bad decisions about regulations that make things worse in the long run, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a perfect example of a fragile system. A robust system could be more what Mark Andreessen would mean by entrepreneurial capitalism, you kind of have a strong guiding vision of a founder and whatever, whatever. And then there's two decentralized ways, right? One is again, fragile and one is anti-fragile. Right. So if you go the decentralized way, you could still be fragile, just like the central one. Absolutely. But you could go towards anti-fragility. And I think the anti-fragility is something that's not baked in into sort of the strongly founder-led company or culture. And that's yeah. why I was talking about Ethereum and Vitalik Buterin. I think he's building, trying to build like this decentralized anti-fragile movement. It doesn't rely on him and his guiding vision, but like it's very much like where does the community want to go? He's kind of putting thoughts out there or ideas and writing like papers, but then it's really up to people to pick it up and do something with it. Yeah. So uh, a couple of thoughts. Uh, one, I love that you brought in anti-fragile. I was going to say, I think a more powerful model would be not what you're robust is the other side in that polarity, but anti-fragile is the other side of fragile. All right. Um, for any listeners not aware, it's a great book, uh, anti-fragile, but term means the opposite of fragile, which is not robust. Robust is neutral to shocks. Anti-fragile is benefits from shocks, right? So I, I love that. And I, I, I think it's, it's a whole other level to get to anti-fragile, not just robust. Robust is at least resilient. It's, it's immune to shocks in some way. Anti-fragile is so much more powerful. It learns and benefits and gets stronger like muscles, right? You break them down in a workout. That's a shock. They get better. They get stronger as a result. That's Holacracy's uh, sweet spot. It is highly decentralized and highly anti-fragile. The, the tensions, when something goes wrong, the system's ability to learn and adapt from it is quite high. It's not just robust. And I, I love that you called that out because this get, get collapsed often. Like uh, Valve, for example, um, I have never touched the company, so caveat, I don't know from first experience, but everything I've read, the reports, uh, and just my own sense of knowing this stuff. Well, I imagine that's an example of a uh, decentralized fragile system. And I think decentralized fragile systems often end up uh, heading towards centralized shadow pow power, P power that is centralized, but finds and pretends to be decentralized. And as ironic, there's a whole press thing that went around about how Valve does holacracy, which is hilarious because they don't, they never have, they've never been influenced by it. It has nothing to do with holacracy. It's just the press not getting that holacracy is a specific framework. It's not just any company that's decentralized. There are really bad ways to do decentralization. It's trying to come to consensus on all sorts of decisions. I've seen companies running that way. It's a disaster. It's an incredibly fragile system. Um, there are others that do manage to get through robust. It's really hard to get to anti-fragile. Um, 
with decentralized systems. I think that's really what holacracy plays in. The other thing I, I'd say, though, is part of the way it does it is an interesting thing. Even in the centralized versus decentralized, uh, I think there's some, some truth in, in categorizing it as decentralized for sure. But really, uh, it's a decentralized system that also encompasses centralized control. It's every time you create a role in holacracy, you are centralizing power very intentionally, right? It's just in a specific area with bounds. So it's really harnessing centralized power just as much. And likewise, uh, it also enables an entity to still exist. One of the challenges you see in the, the crypto world with a lot of the DAOs and all that is they're really trying to just go pure decentralized where individual actors with their own self-interest are somehow, you know, working together towards something larger. And, and there's some beautiful examples of that working, but it's really hard beyond a, a level of complexity uh, because there's a utility in an entity being able to act as a single whole entity, right? Where there aren't independent actors pulling in all their directions for their own ends, but everybody is serving that almost like a fiduciary. And holacracy is interesting in that it still lets the entity, an organization with a clear boundary, that entity owns property, has decision-making, and the agents that show up in it are not representing their own self-interest. They are making a deal with it that says, I'm going to get this pay from it or this incentive in some way. And for that, I'm going to be a fiduciary. I'm going to lead my roles for its sake, not for my own self-interest. And, and yet the way that we do that is a decentralized control system among the roles. So it's this wild hybrid where you can have an entity, and this is true, not just of a whole organization, but every circle team, you might think of it as every role within can act as a whole entity, regardless of how many people are working in it. Right. And, and yet the control structure for it can be decentralized in how we get there. So it's an interesting blend. It, it, it integrates all these polarities for what they do well. You know, I, I don't want a wildly decentralized process for figuring out, you know, what kind of colored markers should we order for, for our, our office, right? Like, <laughs> I really want that to be autocratic and centralized and somebody to have, but not for somebody's own personal pet project. I want them to be using their judgment. What best serves this organization with its purpose? And then go lead that role and use centralized power, right? And, and Holacracy does that. It just breaks it up in a, it's a decentralized way of getting there. It's, a, it's really interesting to talk about. You'll see people that love centralized control see what they love in holacracy and people that love decentralization see what they love in holacracy because it's using the best of both and each for what it's good for. Yeah, and that's so spot on also with my own observation. If you're just decentralized by default, like many DAOs, that's yeah. fragile. That's also yes. kind of the failure mode in a company that I used to work for. We also tried out holacracy, but we didn't really have a grasp of how it could look like. And it turned into these small centers of power, right? Simply because we had the wrong conception of who's taking responsibilities for what. So it was yep. just by default, like the CEO where to make decisions about hiring and firing. And that wasn't truly decentralized. So it um, ironically led to more power to these centralized nodes. Yeah. But again, you always have to say like centralized forms of organizations also have these failure modes to becoming yep. just fragile centralized organizations. But I yep. really like about this concept that is going to this higher form of organization and sort of using emergence. Maybe you can talk a bit more about the emergent order market-led processes. Something I also yeah. often mention at that point is sort of to centralization, decentralization. Have you heard of Ronald Coe's theory of the firm? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's something he's also saying, like, there's benefits to centralization and to decentralization. Yep. 
Centralization yep. is like economies of scale. You need a certain yeah. level of centralization with like high capital intensive goods or something like that. But yeah. then decentralization or it makes it harder to plan when you have larger entities. Yeah. So you kind of grow to the optimum size where you have the economies of scale to deliver on your purpose, but you're also small enough. So planning is still well possible, right? Yeah. I, I, an example maybe of, of just kind of how this, uh, uh, how organizational clarity evolves. So a true story from a while back. So my company, I do a lot of public speaking conferences, podcasts, things like that. Uh, it's a business life for us. We get paid to do a lot of keynotes at conferences. And uh, so we have a role that uh, it's called casting agent that has to book conference talks uh, for me and my role of spokesperson. So casting agent, spokesperson. And uh, as many of you are, casting agent was getting kind of frustrated because she would get a, an inquiry from a conference or reach out, find one and build a whole relationship with conference organizer, talk about, you know, what kind of session am I going to do? How long, you know? Uh, their goals and needs, uh, price, all that stuff. And then she'd present this to me at the end of her process. It was a lot of work, build a relationship. And sometimes I'd look at it and say, no, I'm not going to go. Right. It's either the, the wrong market for us or, or it's just not big enough or whatever. Something just didn't. Um, and, you know, she's frustrated. She wastes time. She built a whole relationship, you know. Uh, so uh, here's what actually happened. She showed up to a governance meeting, which is a meeting every team does. This isn't just at the top. It's every, every team has a governance process for evolving the roles and policies on that team. We're both in the marketing team, circle, marketing circles called. So she shows in this governance process. It's a cool process. I, I won't go into the details. It's a facilitated process, not looking for consensus. There's a bias towards accepting any proposal unless it's going to cause harm in someone else's ability to get their work done. So you're not looking for agreement. You're not looking that everyone thinks this is the right idea. You're just looking for someone to make a proposal and everyone else to say, not going to get in my way of doing work, safe enough to try. There's a whole facilitated process to it. It's quite efficient. Uh, she brought a proposal and she said, I want the spokesperson to be accountable for defining the criteria he's going to use to assess or reject a speaking engagement and then sticking to what he defines. Because if she knew that criteria, she could assess it herself at the beginning of the process and not worry about getting shot down at the end. It took two minutes in the governance process for that proposal to be adopted and add a clear new expectation to my role. And then after the meeting, she was able to turn to me and say, great. So when will you have that done for me by? Give me a projection. Uh, the document, you know, documented, document created for the criteria of videos. And the cool footnote of this story, I'm the founder of this company and a seasoned business leader and CEO from before. She was our newest hire right out of college. In what companies do you know where the newest hire right out of college in two minutes can add an expectation onto the founder and then turn to him and say, so when will you have that done for me? Right? That's pretty cool. And it came not from people sitting around defining a theoretical job description, but from real on the ground, what's happening in this organization that's getting in the way of who her achieving the purpose of her role. It wasn't even personal. It wasn't just what she wanted. She has a role. Every role has a clear purpose and clear expectations. What was happening was getting in the way of that role's purpose and expectations. And so the system evolves and adapts and we create new process and clarity as needed, uh, just in time to actually solve that. And then her work got a lot more efficient after I wrote up that criteria. So that's an example of it, right? It, it's, uh, this is how the, the evolutionary process works. And over time, you asked about emergent order. If you look at uh, my company, so we have a software tool called GlassFrog, which holds this. 
And actually, a lot of management hierarchies use it as well. It doesn't have to be a holacracy-powered company, although it does support them. It's for role-based organizational clarity and people to be able to propose changes to that role. And if you're not running with holacracy, the proposal might just go to a boss. If you are running with holacracy, then the whole team gets to kind of weigh in on that. In this software tool, you can look at my company and you'll see a couple hundred roles, something like that, have maybe six circles or teams, seven circles somewhere, somewhere in there. And, uh, and it's changing. If you look next month, it'll be different because every proposal we bring based on real world feedback changes the structure. New roles will show up, roles will merge, split, uh, expectations will change on roles, uh, constraints will change. So it's a living, living organizational structure. And what's really cool is if you ask me who designed that, you know, who designed all of our roles and policy and process, all the stuff in that, that clear structure, I don't have a, an answer, right? I can't tell you. I mean, I didn't design it, but I, I, it's not even accurate if I were to say all of us did, because then you probably think about people sitting around a conference room designing the structure, which isn't happened. What happened is we started with the minimally sufficient structure we thought would work or we thought would be safe. And somebody felt tension like that. Our casting agent felt some tension. So she made a proposal and that changed the structure a tiny bit. And that's happened again and again and again and again over years in every single team with every single person bringing proposals. And that's emergent order. The structure is the emergent result of processing the real tensions that are in the way of us doing a better job in our roles. It's an emergent living structure. As opposed to most management hierarchies today, most companies are a top-down controlled order, right? We try to upfront in advance, predict and control the structure that's going to best serve. And then maybe we adapt it every few years in a big reorg. We are doing micro reorgs in every team, every couple of weeks. What role does sort of the idea of customer centricity play? Because that's what it feels like is the deficiency or, or where the planning horizon ends, the more centralized, the more top down you become, you just get detached from like the real feedback of customers yep. and of new arising market needs. So yep. as I feel like that's something that the structure is, that's kind of optimizing for, right? Yeah. So uh, again, holacracy is a meta framework. So the answer to so many questions about how it deals with something is, does anyone feel attention about what's happening now? Then great. The goal is to give them a pathway so that they can drive meaningful change. Uh, it, it doesn't try to give you the one right answer to any problem. It just says, where are the tensions? Let's evolve. So if there's a tension around customer centricity, maybe from a, a frontline person, they have a pathway. So an example of that just showed up this morning, a story from one of our, our customers uh, where, that we run, uh, that we're coaching uh, for companies moving towards this direction and coaching this company, a colleague of mine talked to one of the really frontline people, blue collar frontline kind of person who had very little ability to drive change at all in the organization before this, but it's frontline, sees issues that are getting in the way of their customers. And he gave several examples and one of them was like, before Holacracy, anything we needed to buy, even if it was getting in the way of us servicing customers, had about a two-week approval process, even if it was like more staples. And now with Holacracy, somebody on the front line was able to bring up that tension and how it was getting in the way of customers and change the, the budgeting and, and procurement process. So now we can go and just make certain purchases ourselves immediately directly to serve the customer better, right? And he said, that's something they never could have gotten enacted in the previous structure. And there were several other examples like that. It, it's, it's empowering responsiveness to the feedback of those closest to your customer, because those people probably know something and it's giving them a pathway to drive change in a way that doesn't overwhelm the people at the top, trying to solve everyone's problems for them, which I always got overwhelmed by as a CEO. I, I don't want everyone coming to me with their problems. I want people figuring out how to solve them 
but within a process that has some basic controls and make sure it stays safe. And that's what Holacracy gives. So I have may, way more people solving problems than just the old manager, you know, class or whatever. So how does, you already said that it's kind of a stealth project almost to implement larger scale changes in consciousness and organizations of whole societies. So yep. what, what are kind of your guiding um, principles for that or where do you want to see it evolve to? Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's, it's about giving people a taste of something different that's possible and maybe changing the question they're asking. So for example, if you look at the, the broader political landscape, I see so many people trying to figure out how do we get better top-down leadership, whether it's, you know, better people elected into office and whatever definition of better they have. And then there's the tribal warfare over that. But the one thing they tend to agree on is, you know, we need better people in office. There's a different definition of what better means, but, or in Congress or whatever, or better laws. There's a lot of uh, still projecting power or accepting that, of course, the power is there. And how do we get better managers of that power? And in organizations today, it's a parallel. Most companies today, we see that the whole focus is on how do we get better leadership, better managers. Like what Holacracy does is change the entire frame and, and people get a visceral experience of maybe instead of asking, how do we get better managers? Ask, how do we get a, a framework that allows everyone to solve things at their local level more easily and not need better managers anymore? How do we obsolete the function of better managers? And I imagine the more, and I've seen this, the more people taste that in their companies and see, oh, it works, right? You don't need that kind of top-down centralized control. It really does work to have, with the right framework, more of an emergent order that decentralizes power in a really healthy way. That begs a question when they start thinking societally again of, wait, what if we stopped just trying to get better leaders in office and started asking about the framework itself, started saying, well, wait. How else instead can we just go take more power, do more, build more, and not need all that centralization? I think just that the openness to the opening the question itself can be powerful. And I've seen it change political views quite, quite dramatically by putting that seed of doubt. And then it usually doesn't lead to somebody, you know, having their own direct breakthrough. But then when they hear about an alternate vision, right, or when they see something moving in this direction or they hear an argument, it gets in better. Uh, and especially because it's, it's off of the, the current, you know, left, right playing field entirely. It's, it's just saying, well, wait a minute, how do we get a, a framework that just works better at adapting and, and evolving to meet the needs of society? That to me is, is a key part of it. Um, there's a lot of other things. It's also a stealth personal development process, which is great. I, I see people having just breakthroughs in personal growth and consciousness in lots of ways, all under the guise of you're bringing in a way to just run a business more effectively, but what you're really getting is helping change paradigms of how people think about order and think about the relationship of their own consciousness, their sensing of tensions and empowered action from that. Um, it's a practice uh, in many ways. People ask me sometimes, you know, what's my spiritual practice? And uh, among several answers I tend to give, one of them is holacracy. And they think I'm joking, but I'm not. It, it is in many ways a meditative process about noticing what's happening in my body and my mind, noticing the the relationship I have to everything around me and finding a way to own it and direct it into positive change. It is a meditative process uh, of sorts. Can you talk a bit more about that personal development angle and sort of see how it touches people? And I can imagine it's coming from the, you know, I have self-ownership, right? Instead of asking for others or requiring like big political or policy changes to happen, 
I don't need to wait for that, right? I can sort of directly effectuate the changes I want to see. Yeah. So for example, doing Holacracy for a while in your organization, one of the things that will happen is uh, whenever you try to project power outward, right? Yeah. Like I, I love this on the other side where people come to me, often new hires, they're new to this. They come to me and they, they ask something like, what do you want me to do about whatever, which is usually something in their role that they could do. My answer is I don't have the authority to make that decision. We have a constitutional governance structure and our governance process has put that authority in your role, not mine. I don't have the authority to decide that. That's on you. So it pushes back the projection until they take it in and say, oh, well, I have to lead towards this. Same when they complain. They complain about something, waiting for someone else to save you, you know, in this victim mode or whatever. You're expecting someone else to solve your tension. The, the message built into the process is so clear. It's no one else's job to solve your tension. It's your job and you have the pathways to do it. You can challenge others in lots of ways. You can request projects and actions from them. You can bring governance proposals. There's ways to input priorities. You have the tools and levers you need to solve your tension. So you have to shift from that, the judgment, somebody else is screwing up, is doing this wrong, to wait, what's the impact on me? And how do I change the system using that impact as tension, as fuel? And now let's take this to a, a personal relationship, uh, uh, say an intimate partnership. Well, it sure works a lot better when you're frustrated with your significant other to not go to them, go into victim mode, dump blame and judgment on them. Who changes from that? Who has successfully changed their spouse by telling them everything they're doing wrong, right? And waiting for them to just solve it and fix it versus own your tension and notice the impact, not the blame, but the impact. Oh man, I'm feeling these things. I'm responsible for my feelings and what I do with them. And now let me come and make a clean request of you right? Uh, to change the expectations in our, our, our relationship structure based on what I'm feeling. That, that shifts codependence to an interdependence. And I actually had one woman that worked at Zappos when I was helping them adopt Holacracy. It came up to me after six months or so of doing Holacracy. She was in one of my Holacracy trainings there. And she was so excited. She said, I, I finally got, um, and this is a little before the training, I finally got it. I, I got what my therapist has been trying to teach me for years. And I wasn't getting it from regular relationship therapy. And it was about this. It was about really taking full responsibility for your part in the relationship, your tensions, not expecting your partner to save you, but instead owning it, making the requests uh, cleanly that, that you want to make. Holacracy taught her how to do that in a way her therapist apparently was trying for years. So there's, there's something about the regular practice and the, the mirroring Holacracy does Whenever somebody enters a little bit of a victim mode or a little bit of a uh, hiding from their own power, a holacracy makes that blindingly obvious and quite painful uh, for them. And that's powerful medicine. To what degree does holacracy or holocratic forms of organization require network effects? Meaning, you know, if you're just one in hundreds of people that practices it, it's probably not going to work. I mean, once you get it out of the organization and kind of make it part of your personal development, your life, to what degree do you need to build a culture around it that has some density? It certainly helps. And there's a lot you can do alone. Just, you know, like in any relationship, there's often it only takes one person to stay out of the dysfunctional dynamic, completely transcend that dynamic. And... Not always. There's some things that you're never going to be able to achieve without a culture in your relationship of it. Um, and, and yet, what better way to build culture than model it yourself? It tends to work a lot better than try to beat your partner up to change, <laughs> which is ironically not modeling your culture that's very conducive to healthy relating. Uh, but instead, just, just be that change. You know, do what you show and inspire somebody to join you in it. 
I've heard many stories of it changing people and then those people changing their relationships. Yeah. Um, and I was asking because, you know, have you heard about the book, The Network State by Balaji Srinivasa? Yeah. Yeah. I was I love thinking, how would a, you know, holacracy network state look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um, so one of the interesting potentials when we get really deep into holacracy is uh, it, it structures, it, it's such a, a powerful evolutionary governance structure. And, uh, but the way it, it interconnects teams, you have these links between different teams to flow tensions between different teams or circles. And if you take that beyond a company, which you can do, you can cross-link companies and invite representatives to be part of the governance of broader organizations that represent contexts that are relevant to it. So for example, my company has a licensing program. We license other consulting firms to bring our materials and brand and all that to their clients. And instead of trying to define the perfect licensing system for them, what we've done is invite them to send representatives into the circle in my company that manages the licensing program and directly propose changes to that program. So we're kind of their broader context. They're one of their broader contexts, but they're subject to the rules and restrictions in our licensing program. And so, in, but now we have a cross connection. They literally have a representative that comes into our governance process that can propose changes. Or another example, uh, we're actually in the process now of spinning out our licensing program into a foundation. Uh, that's a hybrid DAO holacracy foundation. So there'll be a governance token there and yet still an organization that runs with clear roles using holacracy where the token holders can say, hey, here's a tension, not even a solution, but a tension I have with the licensing program. And if enough token holders ratify that and say, yes, you know, we share that tension, then uh, that person gets the power to jump into a, a governance meeting in the entity to propose changes and then dynamically work through a solution to that tension. Uh, so that allows a really interesting, you know, broader community of stakeholders to get deeply involved in the actual governance of an entity, which I think is pretty cool. So when we take that to a larger societal level, I can imagine the more companies are doing holacracy, the more opportunity there is for this kind of cross-linking that serves everybody, right? You can, you can have this whole web of interlinked, interconnected organizations. Uh, which is in many ways fulfilling a similar process that our current court system does. But the court system is after the fact, somebody's been harmed and you need feedback to get into the other company, so you sue them, right? Like that's an extreme example, but far more effective is to get involved way before you have something you need to sue someone for to actually drive change in their organization more effectively, right? And holacracy allows this, this dynamic adapting and this evolutionary governance and rules to emerge cross-organization or in broader organizations that represent a, a commons or a context that many are, are playing with it. So anyway, all that I think is really, really interesting, but it does require a critical mass of companies using yeah. democracy. And is there some kind of alliance of holocratically organized companies? Are they kind of also working together more than they would with non-holocratic organizations? Uh, yeah, we have many examples of that. Uh, there, there often are. Yeah, I think we'll see more of that as there's just more critical mass, but yeah, we do see it. Uh, for example, I have uh, another company, uh, Glassboro, the software company I mentioned that creates this tool, is it a capital raise and our, our first investor is a fund that also runs with Holacracy, which I, I think is really interesting. I'm wondering how to implement some of these forms of organizations when it comes to a traditional organization institutions, right? I mean, you know, I'm involved in like special jurisdictions, network states, startup cities like Prospera. So I wonder how we can get sort of more sort of experimental fields where we could sort of build 
an alternative way to regulate medical drugs or yeah. an alternative way to like have like a common treasury or something like that. So yeah. anything, any work that you've done or anything that you're interested in, it's sort of that competitive governance space or how does it intersect oh, yeah. with your work? I'm super interested. Um, haven't done as much in it, although we have, have had several government agencies adopt holacracy, not for the legislative side, for the, the execution side, right? Which is an easy, easy fit. I'm really interested in the more broader regulatory uh, uh, landscape. And uh, we see an example of it in my licensing program I mentioned that's effectively a regulatory function that's provided for our licensing program. And I think we can take that model or this foundation model I mentioned with the governance token. I think those apply as patterns to a lot of different possible solutions. So for me, I'm just looking for the right one that wants some help <laughs> to get involved and find some fun. The to, difficult thing is that like, these regulatory agencies, they're so shielded from feedback loops, right? Yes. You, you don't yeah. get the feedback from the market for what impacts any policies or proposals have, right? So yeah. I think that makes it by default very hard to implement or impossible unless you have any different experience yeah. with that. Uh, no, no, it's, 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 it's rough. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, and holacracy does change that. There's been actually a measurement of this. Uh, we had a government agency in the U S adopt holacracy and did some interesting statistic gathering and found, uh, so one of the things they measured is just really tangible is meetings is everyone hates them. And there's a lot to improve and holacracy does really improve meetings with some of its uh, structure. And so they measure, um, we have a big surveying effort before Holacracy and after six months of practice, how many meeting minutes uh, did it take for somebody in the system to get a clear action or clear decision from somebody else? And it went down by over 90%. So literally you can do the same amount of one-tenth the meeting time, which just allows now more stuff can move. Things get stuck in those systems because it takes so fucking long to solve anything, right? But the in more interesting one was they tried to measure... Uh, okay, on average, how many meeting minutes does it take when what you need is a change to a policy of, of the government entity or to somebody else's job description, you know, to what they're actually doing? And they couldn't measure the improvement because the surveys before came back infinite. Uh, it didn't matter how much time people couldn't drive change in that. And if the internal employees can't drive change in it, of course, the society and stakeholders definitely can't because that's relying on the internal employees to do it. Uh, after six months of electricity practice, it was about 20 minutes, uh, meeting minutes on average to drive a significant change to a policy for uh, somebody's job, uh, which is not just a, an efficiency improvement. It's a new capacity. It's a capacity to adapt that wasn't there before. So I, I think we start bringing these more into uh, entities that are doing more of a regulatory function with representation coming into this process that can be pretty magic. What is, is there that you don't see people doing enough of, of when it comes to holacracy or new experiments? <laughs> Understanding what the hell it is. <laughs> it's yeah. so easy to, especially the press is just terrible uh, with this. There, there are some good articles, but very few. And uh, most of them um, are just reporting based on other misreportings from earlier. So there's just all these wrong ideas about what it is and what it isn't and how it works. Your market thing is an example. Uh, I have a hunch that he would actually really respect it if he knew what it was. So one of the things is dig in. And the other that I really wish people did more is uh, not underestimate. This is a significant shift. And uh, if somebody just, you know, grabs my book, reads my book and tries to do it, they're probably going to run into trouble. It really helps to get 
uh, at least a good training in, maybe get a coach if you can, something. It's, this is a massive change to the power structure of your company. Uh, it's not just, yeah, I read a book, I'm going to do this thing, we'll be done in a week, right? It's, it's a big change. Um, it's a very doable change and there's a very incremental path to get there. It doesn't have to be painful, but it will be painful if you don't understand it and don't get the right support. Um, and that's a lot of the, the cases we see. Usually when somebody is doing it well, the answer we get is I would never go back. But there's a lot of failure cases of companies that are trying to do it, tried to do it, but didn't actually know what it was in the first place or just had, didn't have any help. So that, my other thing is, yeah, understand it and get help. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else uh, in the context um, that, of our conversation that we haven't yet talked enough about that you feel like you want to talk more about? Oh, I loved it. We've covered so much ground. Yeah. It was far deeper than my typical interview. So thank oh, you for that. Good, good, good. And any shout outs that you want to give? Anything you'd like to draw attention to listeners of this podcast? Oh, yeah. Where can they find you? What part of your work yeah, can they totally. engage with? Yeah. So uh, our website's a great place to start, uh, holacracy.org. And people misspell holacracy all the time. So <laughs> call this out because otherwise you won't find the website. H-O-L-A. Uh, people misspell it with two O's. It doesn't. H-O-L-A-C-R-A-C-Y.org. And on there, you'll also find uh, we have a, a really, really great training. It's uh, a kind of hybrid. Uh, there's recorded sessions, virtual, and then there's live practice groups that give you really hands-on experience. Holacracy is a practice. It's hard. As much as, by, by all means, go read my book. Uh, it'll give you some sense. But it's like trying to learn music by reading a book about it. Or trying to learn to play soccer by reading a book about it. It can give you something, but you don't learn a practice by reading about it. You learn a practice by playing the game, by doing it. There's coaches all over the world. We have a whole network of licensed coaches that can also do it with you in your real environment. Uh, shout out to that. Check the website. Reach out if you want support or want to connect with someone. Fantastic. This was a really deep and fascinating conversation about sort of one of the key levers of change or of innovation and in like the operating systems of society of organizations, right? And a theocracy kind of as a social operating system that kind of permeates or can create or spawn new institutions. I was myself very impressed by sort of experiencing it a bit more firsthand. What I saw in Zuzalu through the Ethereum foundational movement, that seemed to me a lot of what it is about. It's still to me a bit intimidating <laughs> because mm. it was in my previous organization that didn't work, but it's definitely something that I think is sort of what we discussed, sort of the anti-fragile nature of it is something that's, there's some massive upsides to getting it right and to working towards it. And I think that's a good way to think about how to create new societies, startup societies, network states, which is a big part of this conversation. So thanks so much, Brian, for coming on the show and share your, your deep insights with us and having this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. leaders go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. Each program addresses real-world challenges and is taught by our world-renowned faculty. Join an exceptional peer group. Sharpen your leadership skills. Advance your career. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me go. That's hbs.me go.